I'm going to go back up and I'm going to get us, uh, I'm going to get us back into context again. Enoch is such, Enoch, I'm sorry, we're going to talk about Enoch tonight. <laughs> Jude is such a short little letter that uh, we can, we could read the whole thing every week. You know, we're not going to do that again, but I am going to catch us up in Jude. Um, so we're going to look at verses 14 and 15 today. Uh, and probably beyond that as well. But I'm going to go ahead, since it's been a little while since we were here, I'm going to go back up to verse 3 and read down. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, which is a more literal translation that I like to teach from. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not, excuse me, they blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. So I'm going to stop there because I know I'm not going to get any further than that. All right, let's go to 14 and 15. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. Okay, so let's first of all, who are these? These are the false teachers that he's been addressing all along. This whole letter has been about these false teachers that have infiltrated their church. And I've given you examples. Uh, my example in uh, youth ministry, we had a couple of Mormon missionaries that uh, were coming to our youth meetings for a while and trying to siphon off students uh, to come to uh, the, the Mormon church. And uh, they were nice guys, but you know, a lot of times people are nice and they're not doing nice things, right? Uh, sometimes people are obnoxious, but they're actually doing better things than their temperament would dictate or indicate. Um, the most dangerous people are people that sneak in, and that's what these folks had done. Um, and so we've looked at a, a lot of uh, different things that they were doing within the church, but suffice it to say, they were substituting sensuality for ethical living that results from the gospel. When people believe in Jesus, it makes a difference, or they don't really believe in Jesus. Jesus is just like a, a talisman for them or a, some sort of a, a mascot, 
right? There's lots of people that like Jesus. They like Jesus' name. They want to use it to sort of stamp on what they do and what they think. And you'll find this in all sorts of circles, in religious circles and political circles. And, uh, you know, people just, yeah. I remember back in the 80s, there was a Christian musician named Keith Green. And uh, he was very popular for a while, uh, uh, really somewhat of a piano prodigy. He had, uh, he had gotten a rock and roll singing contract when he was like 11 years old. In fact, there's an old game show called What's My Line? And this, this kid is actually on there. He's a you know, blonde-headed kid. Well, he be- became a believer I don't know that anybody ever heard any of his music when he you know, signed as a popular rock musician as a kid, but he became a believer in his 20s. And uh, his music was very popular in Christian circles and was a big blessing to me. Uh, look him up, Keith Green. But he gave his testimony and he was really, I'm not really fond of preachers that sing and singers that preach. I think if you're a worship leader, you need to sing and lead us in worship. And if you're a preacher, you need to teach the word of God and preach. But you got these worship leaders that think they need to preach for hours and hours. And you've got these preachers that think they need to sing every other, you know, do what you're called to do. But occasionally there's somebody that has both of those gifts and callings. And this was, uh, this fellow was like that. He had music that was like sermons. And so when he did his live stuff, he would play the piano and he would sing and then he would, you know, preach in accordance with the song. But it was, it was uplifting. It was edifying. It was challenging because he was actually called to do that. Uh, there are those that just feel like they need to entertain a crowd or something, right? Uh, there are preachers that maybe have good voices and so they want to entertain and, you know, so they do this. And there are Worship leaders that think they need to do fills in between the songs and say this and that and the other thing. Uh, do what you're called to do. But Keith Green had both callings and, and both giftings. And in his testimony that I heard him give on a number of occasions, and in fact, I, I read a, uh, a book of his testimony as well. He said, I searched and searched for the truth. And he looked into all of these religions, right? So we're talking, this is, uh, this is the 70s. Uh, when uh, he became a Christian. And in the early 70s, he was in his young young 20s, and he was just like, you know, there was just an explosion of alternate, alternative religious uh, beliefs that were available in California during that time. It was sort of in the wake of the, uh, the sexual and drug revolution that went down in the late 60s. And Keith Green went through all of it. And in fact, if I remember correctly, he was into one strange religion right before he became a Christian called Urantianism. Okay, Urantianism. But what Keith Green said is he, he looked at all these other religions and they all pointed to Jesus. So he started looking at just Jesus and he said, and Jesus pointed to himself. If everybody else points to Jesus and Jesus is pointing to himself, why am I listening to anybody but Jesus, right? So that's kind of the, uh, the idea here is that uh, the focus is on Christ, not on the person, not on the personality of the preacher or the worship leader. And we'll get into that in a little more, uh, more detail if I make it that far. But let's look at this, uh, let's look at this statement about Enoch prophesying, okay? So this actually comes from a, uh, a non-canonical book. That means it's not an inspired book in the Bible. It's not even in the Apocrypha, right? Catholics, um, Episcopalians, Anglicans, same thing. And uh, a number of other high church folk accept this group of books that were written between the Old Testament and the New Testament time period in that 400 year period. And they're collectively called the Apocrypha, the hidden books. Um, Protestants have not accepted them. Uh, Protestants just meaning churches that are not Catholic churches by and large. Uh, We've not accepted them as anything other than history. 
And the reason why is because the Jewish people did not accept them as being on par with the scripture. So uh, there's some, there's some uh, precedent for that among Protestants. They didn't just say, hey, we're gonna go against Catholics and we don't accept these books. But there's another group of books that are collectively often referred to as the pseudepigrapha, right? Pseudo meaning false, and graphe in Greek meaning writing, the false writings. Well, it's more, more specifically, it's not just that they are false writings, they are falsely named writings, right? So the, the work that is quoted by Jude here is called First Enoch, and it is named after, as Jude indicates, Enoch, the seventh from Adam. So if you go back to Genesis and you look at those wonderful genealogies that we're all fond of trying to wade through, you know, you're, okay, I'm gonna read through the Bible this year. And then you start getting in, there's a genealogy. And it's like, wow, that's really bogging me down. And there's another genealogy. And then you hit First Chronicles and you're like, oh my goodness, this is a lot of names and a lot of numbers. And I don't understand what I'm supposed to get out of all of this, you know? What you can get out of all of that short of deeper study into the history is that the Bible is a historic, historical book. It's not just a fairy tale. It's not a bunch of myths and fables. It's rooted in actual history. Nonetheless, um, Enoch was the one, and the only thing it says of him was Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So, it has been believed that Enoch never died. Who else, just while we're in the neighborhood, who else never died? Elijah. Elijah. So Enoch and Elijah never died. Moses died, but nobody knew where the Lord buried him. It's interesting to me that Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration stood and spoke with who? Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, interestingly. Um, all right, so I'm moving a little further afield from where I wanted to be. This passage and the one earlier about the argument with the body of Moses, which comes from another pseudepigraphal book uh, that we looked at previously, are reasons why there was some dispute in the church in the first era or the early primitive church, there was some dispute as to whether Jude should be part of the canon, that is part of the accepted books that are authoritative and inspired. But Jude made it all the way through, uh, as I've indicated to you and as we'll see today, if I get that far, uh, Jude is closely aligned with Second Peter, which also, by the way, had some difficulty making it into the canon. But as uh, Jude says at the beginning, that he urged them to contend once for all for the faith that was passed down to the saints. Jude is presenting that faith and contending for that faith, and we can clearly see that this is an inspired book. But there are caveats. What in the world is he talking about? If this is a pseudepigraphal book, he says that this is Enoch the seventh from Adam who prophesied. Well, is he validating that or is he simply making a statement that helps us to understand where he's reading from, okay? Um, I am not sure whether he believed, that is whether Jude believed that this was actually written by Enoch or not. But the point is the quote and what the quote is trying to tell us. So I'm gonna go back to something I said in a sermon about a month ago, and that I mentioned when we were in Jude and we were looking at that, uh, that passage about the Archangel Michael uh, getting into an argument uh, over the, the body with Lucifer over the body of Moses. Okay, did that actually happen? Well, it's a story that's in another pseudepigraphal book and the point that I made at the time was that doesn't have to be inspired, nor does the story even have to be factual 
in order for Jude to use it as a way to convey truth or to make his points. All right, so what am I saying? Um, about a month or so ago, uh, I preached a sermon. Uh, I want to say it was, it was in the Advent series. It was either on peace or joy. And I gave an ex example or an illustration from the superhero world, right? The, the Marvel universe where I talked about Iron Man. Now, the first Iron Man movie came out in, I think, like 2008. Now, I never read any of the comic books or any of that stuff. I did watch all of those movies. But Iron Man is basically this guy that sells arms, right? That's how he's made this huge, amassed this huge fortune. And he's selling arms to these folks. And he gets abducted by terrorists. And he gets shoved in a cave with a, I guess it was like a Russian scientist or something like that. And he is being told that he's going to have to help these terrorists to use his missiles, right, that his company makes. Well, what he ends up doing is he ends up taking all of this, these different materials that are being made available to him in this cave and building the suit that enables him to get out of there. So the point that I made was, God has given you the resources to deal with your situation. You have resources. You may not think you do. In that Iron Man story, it didn't look like Iron Man had much of anything except a gun to his head and, you know, the need to go ahead and use these limited materials that he had to make this missile active so that these terrorists could use it. But he used those resources to create something that enabled him to get out of that situation. And I believe God's given you the resources that you need to get out of your situation. Now, by using that illustration that I just used, does that mean I believe Iron Man is real? Does it? No, I'm using a story. And I'm using a story to help you to think through your life and say, okay, well, you know, let's, let's make a parallel here, you know. And if you haven't seen the Iron Man and you're not into, you know, superheroes and all that, it might not be that great of an illustration for you. But nonetheless, um, the idea behind that, I think, is the idea here is using available literature to make this point. But I think that this quotation, because this is the only uh, this is the only literary quote that Jude makes. He alludes to a lot of things. Uh, well, take that back. He, it, he does appear to be quoting 2 Peter, and we'll see that in a moment. But um, he's quoting directly from this, this work called First Enoch. Um, First Enoch, at least at this part of that particular work of literature, if you will, is about the day of tribulation, the day of trouble. And that corresponds to the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, right? Uh, and that is the judgment of God against the wicked. Now, I made that case earlier to you uh, as we were going through Second Peter, that whatever we see right now that's going on, the Lord is going to return and he's going to make everything right. So it may look like everything's messed up right now, may look like there's injustice and uh, like people are getting away with stuff that they shouldn't get away with, but the Lord is going to return and he's going to make everything right. And that's something that uh, those who believe in the God of the Bible have held to since the, prof the time of the prophets in the Old Testament, right? So this is how First Enoch starts off. This is First Enoch 1.1. The blessing of Enoch, with which he blessed the elect and the righteous who would be present on the day of tribulation at the time of the removal of all the ungodly ones. So that's what this whole book of First Enoch is about, the removal of the ungodly from the earth, the time of judgment. Now I'm going to read the passage that uh, surrounds the quote that Jude uh, gave in Jude 15. Actually, Jude 14 and 15, because it's a long quote. This is from First Enoch. Uh, this is First Enoch 1, 7, the second half of 7 through 9. And there shall be a judgment upon all, including the righteous. And to all the righteous he will grant peace. 
He will preserve the elect, and kindness shall be upon them. They shall all belong to God, and they shall prosper and be blessed, and the light of God shall shine unto them. Behold, he will arrive with ten million of the holy ones in order to execute judgment upon all. He will destroy the wicked ones and censure all flesh on account of everything that they have done, that which the sinners and the wicked ones committed against him. So this is not a prophecy from the actual person Enoch, but it is a parable, right? It's a story that is intended to convey a a particular point. It has truth in it, right? A parable is a story with a particular purpose or moral to teach. The character Enoch in this writing is and tells such a story. Listen to that again. This is not the actual Enoch that walked with God and then was taken, right? This is a character in this work of literature that is part of this extended parable about the day of tribulation. All right, listen to this from 1 Enoch 1, 2. And Enoch, the blessed and righteous man of the Lord, took up his parable while his eyes were open and he saw, and he saw, and he said, this is a holy vision from the heavens which the angel showed me. So what I'm trying to get across here is that this is a parable. This is a story that is intended to convey truth. It has a moral behind it. You can read a lot of different things. We need to align what we read with the Bible if we're going to know what is truth and what is the lie. But there is a lot of different literature that you can read that can help illustrate and it can even help you to understand the, the truth that God has affirmed and confirmed in his word. Now, I'm never going to read from these sorts of books, writings, whatever, and think that that is somehow inspired on par with the word of God. It's not. You have to look at the word of God to validate anything. So when you hear me preach or when you... Uh, listen to me teach, you need to pay close attention to God's word. I'm trying to teach you from the word. But if I say something, you know, that is a, a, an application, right? An application to you personally or to our church or to our country. I want you constantly looking at the word of God and making sure that that aligns. You don't hear me saying, the Lord told me this and the Lord told me that. I'm just going to tell you what I believe, and I'm going to let you align that with the Word of God, and I'm going to let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Because if the Lord told me that, then He's going to tell you. He's going to affirm that. you. If you have a relationship with Jesus, then you have the Holy Spirit, and you have the ability to determine truth from error. So you're not going to hear me walking around saying, Thus saith the Lord, you need to listen to me. I am a prophet of God. I don't have that authority. The word of God has that authority. And I further, I'm going to say this. Anybody who says, I'm a prophet, you need to listen to me. You need to run from. Self-proclaimed prophets are not prophets. Now, this is interesting. It's something that I just learned. Um... In the karate world, and you guys, most of you know that uh, I've taught karate for 35 years. Um, I started studying karate over 40 years ago. In the karate world, a black belt teacher, a black belt instructor is called a sensei. I just encountered some information about that the other day uh, from the Japanese language. I didn't know this. A sensei in Japan would never call herself or himself sensei. Other people recognize it. Other people recognize that person's. So in other words, just having a black belt doesn't make you a sensei. A sensei is typically known as a black belt instructor, a black belt teacher. This is someone who has achieved a level of skill 
and understanding who can now turn around and teach others, right? But a sensei is recognized by those peers, all right, other teachers, and that sensei is also recognized by students as being someone who is worthy of that title. I thought that's really interesting. Now, why am I telling you that? Because a prophet is the same way. If you've got a hammer down and tell everybody that you're a prophet and the Lord is talking to you, then you're wanting people to listen to you, not the Lord. And that's a problem. That's a big problem, all right? So the canonical prophets and Revelation confirm the truth that is spoken here in First Enoch that is quoted by Jude, uh, and that is Jesus will return. This time he's going to come for the purpose of judgment, and the righteous will be at peace, but the wicked will perish. Listen to this from Revelation 19. Now, you want to know how to validate that quote from this extra-biblical work, First Enoch? Here it is. Revelation 19, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, um, let's go back to talking about First Enoch. That validates the statement that is quoted here, right? The Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment on all. Well, we see that that's actually gonna happen in a canonical work, Revelation, okay? But regarding whether First Enoch, because there are those that are like, well, maybe First Enoch should be in the Bible then, since it's quoted by Jude. Um, Richard Baucom of the Word Biblical Commentary writes, quote, prophesied. While this word, because it says it was prophesied by Enoch, while this word indicates that Jude regarded the prophecies in First Enoch as inspired by God, it need not imply that he regarded the book as canonical scripture. And then he talks about a community that was discovered outside of Jerusalem in the desert called the Qumran community. He says at Qumran, for example, the Enoch literature and other apocryphal works were evidently valued without being included in the canon of scripture. So in other words, this is a lot like the apocrypha. There is some interesting historical information, even some truth that can be found there, but it should not be considered canonical and inspired alongside scripture. Right, so let's move from the uh, discussion about Enoch and First Enoch uh, to Jude, uh, verse sixteen. There's only one chapter in Jude, so it's typical in these letters that just have one chapter. You just say the verse. You don't have to say Jude one sixteen, since Jude has one chapter. You just say Jude sixteen, and anybody that understands that Jude is one chapter is going to go to verse sixteen. Right, so Jude sixteen. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So he's gone back to talking about these false teachers and what they're like, okay? So he just he cited judgment against them. Now he comes back to talking about what they're doing. So the false teachers uh, were unhappy complainers who sought to spread their discontent. Wow. That sounds like politics in our day, right? Grumblers, complainers, malcontents. Nobody's ever happy, right? My side didn't win. Ah! Grumble, grumble, complain, complain. You know, throw accusations. Well, let's look at these words in Greek. I love this. Don't you love the word grumble? Right, so that I don't think that I'm preaching to a tomb in the room, right? I want everybody just, I want you to say the word grumble three times when I say now. Now. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Now here's another one. This is a, this is a, a, a synonym for grumble. Murmur. 
right? So everybody, when I say now, say the word murmur three times, because this will work even better. Go. Murmur, 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 Grumble, grumble, grumble. In Greek, it is the word gonguzo. Gonguzo. It's an onomatopoeia word. Do you know what an onomatopoeia word is? Crack! Bang! Boom! Ding! What's an onomatopoeia word? It sounds like what you're The sound of the word is doing what it's saying. Ding! Boom! Right? Murmur, 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 gungoozo. I'm not happy at all. Right? Then he calls them malcontents. These are complainers. Um, one interpreter called them blamers of their lot. In other words, you know why I'm I am where I am right now? It's all of these other people's fault. I don't bear any blame whatsoever. I'm in my situation because of everybody else. The trouble with that is you can't change everybody else. But you can change you. You can change how you look at your situation. So right now, and I, it's, I, I don't even know what I'm going to preach on Sunday yet, quite honestly, and usually I know ahead of time, and I had a lot of plans for the first of the year, and I keep going around and around, and so you can keep praying for me about that. I have some, some solid ideas. Um, but um, one of the things that I see happening right now, and I don't know how, uh, how common this is, but I've, I've had several people now that are so down they had such a hard time with 2020 that they think 2021 is going to be the same or worse. I don't know if that's you or not. I don't think so. But it's not about 2020 or 2021. It's about God's promises and me seeking his promises and me trusting him to fulfill his promises. So you know what? No matter what happens out here in the big wide world, pandemic-wise, politics-wise, I know who's on the throne. Amen? Amen? I know who's in charge. Amen. You see, we show ourselves to be very, very carnal people when we require our circumstances to line up in order to have peace and joy and hope. Listen, that's not in any way spiritual. There's nothing supernatural about that at all. Anybody can be happy when everything's going their way, right? But as I said, when I talked about joy during Advent, man, joy is, is you know, being positive in the face of anything, right? And th the Word of God doesn't change because, oh, there's a pandemic. We can't trust the word of God now. Oh, my politician did not get into, uh, into office. My politician didn't get elected. Well, can't trust the word of God. Oh, well, my politician got in. Good. Now I don't have to worry about the word of God anymore. I'm just going to trust the government. Well, that's about the dumbest thing you ever did. I want the government to feed me. I want the government to clothe me. I want the government to give me medical care. I want the government to educate me. Yeah, the government's just going to run your life, and the government's going to ruin your life. You and I need to give our lives to Jesus Christ, and we need to follow him. You want to hear something interesting? When Christians in the first century said Jesus is Lord, they were flying in the face of the Roman government. Do you know why? Because that's what every citizen of Rome said. Caesar is Lord. So who's your Lord? The president? The past one? The next one? Congress? Who's your Lord? The government? Who's your Lord? Who do you follow? Who do you put yourself under? Who do you trust? Hey man, I magically had $600 deposited in my account last week. I didn't even know that they'd already approved that and they did it. 
Looked at my bank account. Oh, I don't know if you've checked your bank account lately, but you know, they're like, hey, we're going to print money and give it out. Here you go. Well, you know, for people that have been thrown out of work, $600 is an insult, essentially. And for those of us that do have a job, well, sure. I mean, it's free money, but I don't need it. I'm going to use it. Use it to pay bills. But yeah, but see, this is like buying your vote type of stuff, right? This is like getting you to be more. Listen, when the early Christians said Jesus is Lord, it got them persecuted. In fact, it got a lot of them martyred. Did you know? that several of the Caesars, several of the Roman emperors, actually believed that they were gods and demanded worship. Now, the worship that, that, that they demanded wasn't all that difficult. It wasn't arduous. What they wanted is for people to say, Caesar is Lord, and to offer a pinch of incense as a way of showing him worship. Now, I am wondering if Christians today would have the courage of Christians in the first, second, and third centuries who said, no, I can't do that because Jesus is my Lord. I am betting you any amount of money that the quality of Christians we see today would simply say, well, it's no big deal. It doesn't mean anything anyway then basically your word means nothing and your allegiance to Jesus means nothing too. If you can say Jesus is Lord and if you can treat any other human being that same way, then you've just clearly demonstrated that that word Lord doesn't mean anything to you at all, right? Those early Christians were willing to die for their faith. Now, I hope you don't have to. I hope I don't have to. But are you willing to? Good question. Yes. Then he says that these false teachers are loud mouth boasters. All right. Um, this means that they, they, they boast with great swelling words. This is also used in 2 Peter 2.18 of this same group of people. Um, Vincent's word study says the word means of excessive bulk. It denotes a kind of speech full of high-sounding verbosity without substance. So, these folks wanted to sound intelligent and they wanted to sound important. They used big words. They used words not to convey meaning, not to get the point across, not to help people understand anything, but they used words to impress people. They wanted to impress the hearers. Have you ever been guilty of this? I have. Choose a word that I know that you don't know, and you'll think I'm smart, right? Now, I'm always teaching, so I will often use a word that I think fits what I'm trying to say the best. And then I will ask people, do you know what this means? It's not my effort to sound smart or be above you. It's my effort to introduce something new to your vocabulary, to teach you, because I think words create categories in your mind that allow you to understand things better, right? So a lot of times I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to learn uh, new terminology. I used to, this is easy to do now, but I used to, when I would read, would read with a dictionary sitting next to me, rather than just reading past a word or several words and not knowing what they meant, I would just look them up in the dictionary. Now, it's really easy, right? I read with Amazon Kindle all the time. All you gotta do is press and hold the word and it highlights it and then it says definition and it reads you the definition. So you can improve your vocabulary very easily these days, right? But there are those, and as I said, I, I've been guilty of this, who use words just to try to impress people. But words are important, and they should be chosen carefully and concisely to communicate clearly, not just to impress folks. He says they show favoritism to gain advantage. Well, they're politicians then. That's what your $600 check is about, by the way. 
showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now, that can also, in a group, like in a church group, that can also be showing favoritism to a certain group of people and excluding other people as a way to be more important. So in the early days of this church, I don't think I've ever mentioned this in teaching before, but in the early days of this church, I had some young men that uh, I was trying to teach to be leaders and uh, they showed some leadership skills. And so I left them in charge of a Bible study that I did while I went uh, out of town. I came to discover when I got back in town that one of these young men was basically playing favorites. And I won't go into all of the details, but you know, this was a fairly large Bible study and it was being held at my house. And it was like, these were his favorites and these were part of his family. And these people were being excluded. To the point that, now, bear in mind, my early church, when this church started, it was 16 to 25-year-olds. A lot of teenagers, a lot of early 20-somethings. He was making folks feel like they were worthless. There were several of the, of the young ladies that you know, were crying because they weren't part of the group. You're all part of the group. That's the community of faith. That's the church. We're the called out and we're the called together to worship. And that's one thing I want this church to always be about. Now, you know, everybody can't know everybody on the same level, right? We can't all hang out all the time together or anything like that. But acceptance is essential. We don't just show favoritism to try to gain an advantage over people. So beware the politician or salesman or preacher who tells you what she or he thinks you want to hear. The purpose is not to prop you up, but to get you to believe in them so that they may gain something from you, advantage, favor, votes, money, control. Be careful when somebody gives you that compliment, right? What's the point behind it? What's the purpose behind it? Now, I'm not saying be suspicious of everybody or whatever, but I am saying watch, okay? And uh, this is verses 17 through 19. We'll see if we get through all these verses. So. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. Well, there you have the basis for uh, these false teachers uh, teaching, right? Their own instincts. Okay, listen. Your own personal intuition is not the Holy Spirit. Right? ESP, woman's intuition, my gut tells me that's not the Holy Spirit. It's not. I'm just going to follow my heart. That's not the Holy Spirit. Unless Jesus is in your heart and you are constantly aligning yourself with the Word of God, there's a real tendency for people to just be emotional, feeling-oriented. And this is why I see people who are from that, I guess, temperament, falling away from the faith. Because their faith was never in the Word of God to begin with. Their faith was in their own feelings. And their feelings were being charged up, elicited, moved by some preacher, preacher some teaching or worship leader, or whatever it is. But as soon as that changes, then the faith changes because the faith is in the feelings, not in the word of God, okay? He says, the apostles foretold. But dear friends, remember when the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold this. Well, this is a parallel to Second Peter and a verification that it is indeed an apostolic book. Listen to what Second Peter 3, 3 through 4 says. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised, talking about the second coming of Christ. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has been since the beginning of creation. So, he says here, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires, right? And 
Here you have an apostle, Peter, making that statement uh, clearly that there are folks that would scoff and rather than follow the word of God, they would follow their feelings. Paul also warned people not to scoff in the conclusion of one of his earliest sermons. Uh, and this sermon was preached, he preached in the city of Antioch in Pisidia. It's recorded in Acts chapter 13. Here's the concluding statement, which by the way, is a quote from the prophet Habakkuk. Beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. That is a sad indictment. When you get to the place that you actually see God's work being accomplished and you won't believe because you are so enchanted or inured by your own beliefs, your own feelings, your own desires. That's a dangerous place to be in. You know, people say, well, I want to see it. I'll believe it. But you know, when you get bogged down in your own faith and your own thoughts and your own feelings, even when you see it, you won't believe in him that he's the one that brought it about. Or we make some sort of naturalistic explanation, right? Well, it would have happened anyway, that sort of thing. He says, these folks follow their own ungodly desires. This is, again, part of this quote, uh, part of this passage in Jude 17 through 19. Uh, Paul refers to following your own ungodly desires rather than Christ in his letter to the Philippians. Listen to this from Philippians 3, 18 and 19. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. I don't know if you're still paying attention. You've been listening a long time, but that's our era. That's our age. The, your God is your belly. What does that mean? Your God is your stomach. It means your God is your appetite. That could be an appetite for food. It could be an appetite for booze. It could be an appetite for drugs. It could be an appetite for sexual things right? Your God is your belly. Your God is your appetite. That's what you serve. That's who could be, you know, God could be other things as well, but oftentimes uh, this is where people find themselves. And I think we see this a lot today. And he says, their destiny is destruction, right? And their glory is in their shame. It's interesting that things were once, things that were once considered shameful, practices that were once considered shameful, are now celebrated. And in fact, it's not enough that they be permitted or that they be allowed to celebrate. You have to go along and you have to celebrate too. And my friends, that's only gonna get worse. But you and I need to hold to the word of God. That's all there is to it, okay? Um, and then, again, speaking of following their own ungodly desires, that what these teachers are doing in Jude's uh, situation. Here's an admonition to Timothy uh, from the Apostle Paul. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, and now the part I wanted to get to, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. In other words, these pleasure seekers are religious people. Now, you know, we can imagine the people that are out there in the world don't want to have anything to do with the church. They're just, you know, doing whatever they're doing and don't want to have anything to do with God. But he's talking about people, that is Jude is speaking of people, and uh, Paul is speaking to his protege Timothy here of people who are religious, but who are nonetheless uh, far short of what God wants because they love pleasure rather than God. That's a problem. And Paul says to Timothy, have nothing to do with such people. So I would offer that to you. You can be a friend to anybody but be careful who you trust.
Be, be careful who you depend on. Be careful who you're friends with, right? I used to have to, you know, the youth ministry for years used to have to tell teenagers, be careful who you run with. I used to tell teenagers, you're going to become like the dogs you run with. So I had this dog. His name was Elvis. He was a basset hound. That's how he barked. Elvis the basset hound. But he was mixed with beagle. Basset hounds are mellow. Beagles are hyper. So I had a basset hound that was hyper. <laughs> and I was living in an apartment for a while, but it had this, like, or it was a condo, and it had like this little area that, you know, that he could go and run around in and whatever. But I didn't have a yard for him to run. But see, basset hounds should be good for this because they're lazy. They don't like to run around. Like you don't go running. You don't see people out there running with a basset hound. That's not what you do. Their legs are like this big and their bodies are like this big around and they're like this long, right? And their ears drag the ground anyway. But he was Elvis. That was my basset hound. So I started uh, rooming with a fella. Um, and uh, this is right before I left the colony to come to Garland. And uh, this, uh, this fellow was in our church he was single, I was single. He was in a two bedroom uh, duplex. So I stayed there for about six months. Well, he was a good old boy from Arkansas, right? And he said, he said, let me take your dog to, to, you know, to, the, to the farm or whatever it was in Arkansas, right? So you had to meet this guy, he's a character. He, he is, his name is Timmy, Timmy. He said, let me take your dog to the farm for the weekend. I'm like, okay, Tim, that's fine. So Timmy takes Elvis to the farm for the weekend. And Elvis ran around with all of those wild farm dogs all weekend long. I mean, he just had the run of the farm. I mean, they just ran around and ran around and ran around. When he brought my dog back, it wasn't the same dog. <laughs> he started running with all those other dogs and he wanted to be a farm dog like them that could just run wild and whatever. Long story short, I moved here to Garland not too long after that. I was in a condo and Elvis jumped over the, the wall that I had in this thing and just disappeared, man. He was like, no, I want to be like them Arkansas farm dogs. I got my taste of freedom and I'm getting out of here, right? So long story short, you be like the dogs that you run with, all right? So I'll get to this next part next time. It's eight o'clock now, but uh, I'm going to read this just to, to get you to think about it for next week. These people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. You want people that have the Holy Spirit to be teaching you, all right? So thank you guys for coming. I appreciate it so much. God bless you guys. All right, that's that. And that's